How much money did you make from Facebook? <laughs> <laughs> Today on the show, we are talking to Nosire Yassin, aka Nas Daily. He's a Harvard graduate who left his six-figure job at Venmo to start making videos on Facebook. He made a thousand videos in a thousand days right when Facebook launched video and grew his audience to 20 million followers. Today, we're talking to Nosire about everything he learned during those thousand days daily vlogging on Facebook, as well as the transformation he's made going from creator to corporation with his new business that educates creators, Nas Academy. Nas has turned himself into a very significant business. According to Tiffany Zong, his annual revenue is $8 million a year, and that comes across multiple businesses. So before we get into the interview with Nas, we want to thank the sponsor of today's episode, Storyblocks. Storyblocks has everything you need to tell a story, from footage to audio to even after effects templates. You can literally make an entire video with just the content you find on Storyblocks. Now, we've been using Storyblocks long before they were a sponsor of the channel, but they've been sponsoring us for almost two years now and have played a massive role in us being able to take on being creators full time. They're a huge part of the reason why we're able to commit to having a weekly show every Monday, no matter what. Now, whether you're a creator looking for more tools to help you make videos or you're a company looking to get into the content game, Storyblocks is the perfect place for you to go. And with their flexible subscription plans, you can definitely find something that works for you. So thanks again to Storyblocks for being a sponsor of the channel for so long. They are so supportive and we hope you guys support them too. So head over to storyblocks.com slash Colin and Samir to check out Storyblocks. And now let's send it to Singapore for our interview with Nas Daily. All right, so I first, the first question that we want to ask you is, you know, we've been referring to you in our emails as Nas. We also <laughs> know that you've had some other names that you've referred yourself to, like Nosy. And we're <laughs> curious, uh, what is your name and, and how do you go by, how did you come up with going by Nas? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So my real name sucks. It is very complicated. It is no sire, like yes sire, no sire, yes sire, no sire. And it is like, it's like, it's such a name that even in my local language, it's not really a thing. Nobody really knows it, but it's a very historical name. It means mini victory. And uh, when I went to the United States, uh, my first day at Harvard, uh, I, my roommate is from Wisconsin. And, uh, you know, Wisconsin people are, don't really know any Arabic names. Uh, and so I said, my name is Nasir. He's like, no, it's not. It's Nas like the rapper. And, and he said, from right. now on, I'm going to call you Nas like the rapper. And I was like, well, no, don't call me Nas the rapper. I don't like Nas the rapper. Um, but eventually I realized Nas also means people. And uh, so I adopted that name because it has a meaning. It's not just a rapper. Uh, and so Nas Daily now essentially is People Daily. Nas Academy is People's Academy. And my real name is, is Nosire. Or Nosy if you know me before uh, college days. That, uh, yeah, that's, that's super interesting. When I was thinking about it, I connected with some of it because, you know, growing up in, in L.A., my, obviously my name is Samir and <laughs> the natural shortened version is Sam. Sam. It's a very simple, simple nickname. And, uh, but I think uh, the culture, even just as growing up, you know, as, as time has matured, like no one calls me Sam now. Everyone calls me Samir. And I think that's just the nature of people yeah. being more familiarized and also people like uh, yourself being 
more available online and, and being able to connect at large scales. Was that something that you thought about um, Definitely. or that you do think about in your content? Always. Like universality is the number one most interesting thing for content and number one most important thing. And so if you want to be universal, first of all, your name has to be universal. Uh, and that's why Nas, uh, a Filipino can say Nas, an Indian can say Nas, an Arab can say Nas, a German mm. can say Nas, and an American can say Nas. So, and, and a Chinese can say Nas. So you literally conquered the whole world with a simple name. Uh, and that's why I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, Nas Daily and Nas Academy name. Because uh, it, one, it has meaning, but two, it's, it's universal. Uh, that's why I'm so surprised that Casey Neistat was able to succeed. I'm like, <laughs> Casey, how did you do it? Like, your name is incredibly hard. Neistat. Yeah. He, yet he made it work. <laughs> so It was unique. It was. So in your day-to-day now at Nas Academy, are you going by Nas most frequently or are you going now by Nusair? No, no, my real name is Nusair. Everybody calls me Nusair. Um, yeah, okay, I'm building, okay. So now I'm, I'll, I'll call yeah. you Nusair now. Exactly. Yeah. I'm building the Nas brand, uh, uh, but, but my real name is Nusair. And eventually, actually, I want to go by my last name, which is Yassin. And I think it's very exciting to go by last names. That is exciting. So <laughs> I, another thing that's exciting is we had a call and you kind of told us everything that's happening in your world. And I remember you know, years ago being engulfed in, in your daily uploads and being amazed that at what you were making on a daily basis. And to go from that, a, a, a single creator who's traveling the world and, and, and producing video to the space you're in right now, literally in, in your office where you have these pictures of all these employees, it'd be great to get a look at, <laughs> at, at all these members uh, of your team. Like, how, where are you today? What does this brand look like today? I'd love to get a paint a picture of that, and then and then we can go back in time. Yeah, yeah. So that's a that's a good question. Um, I think there are some people in the world that are creators first and creators last. Um, I've I've never been a creator first and last. I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur first and a creator second. I had no money, no investments, no connections, no network. So I said, you know what? I don't want to build a company now. Let me just go and, and travel and make videos. And so I became a creator first. And then once I sort of made a thousand videos in a thousand days, I realized, okay, I don't want to be 60 years old making 6,000 videos. It is, it is not what I aspire to be when I'm 60, having to make videos to sustain my life. Being a creator that relies on your time and on your effort is inherently unscalable. And so uh, two years ago, I decided to sort of shift focus and become a corporation and become an institution, an organization. And that's where I think real power can come in addition to being a creator. So now instead of hanging out in the Maldives and making videos, I'm just sitting in my office nine to nine every day, uh, trying to hire and fire and, and raise money and spend money. And it is equally exciting. And what does Nas Academy do for some of our viewers who may be watching but are unaware? The world is changing, right? Uh, I think content creators are going to be, you know, the future journalists of the world, right? Uh, You guys are essentially creator reporters. At this point, I don't need the New York Times. Content creators are the future commerce of the world. I don't need to buy from a store like Macy's. I can just buy from my favorite Instagrammer. 
And content creators are going to be also the future educators of the world. I don't need to go to university. I can just learn from my favorite creator. And we want to build technology tools and a platform that empowers content creators to become educators. I think in this world of content creation, there is just not enough focus on education. And I view education as the natural step for any creator. So when I started making videos, I had, let's say, a million followers. I said, okay, it's time to monetize my audience. And I was like, okay, what do I do? What do creators do to monetize their audience? And it's just like selling t-shirts. And I was like, okay, I could sell this t-shirt. But at some point I realized this may be a little bit off brand. Like, I don't know how to sell t-shirts. I never started Nas Daily to become a clothing store. I don't know how to source the best t-shirts, how to sell size, medium, large, you know, designs. That's not my forte. And some people do it really well, like Yes Theory, and they're incredible at it and they want it, but it's not for me. And so that's why I realized education is very on brand for me as a creator and for you guys as creators as well. And so that we want to empower more creators to become educators because knowledge is the only thing that increases when you give it away. And that's powerful. Wow. Mm. What a line. <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. I, I, I copied it. I, I, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, if I say that on a panel someday, then I'll try and remember to cite you. But uh, and, if and you cite me citing someone else, to be clear. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> All right. So when you go back in time, I think what's interesting where you are today is fascinating um, to me because of even your background when it comes to going to Harvard and, and being educated in what's considered one of the top educational institutions and universities. Even before that, you grew up in, in Israel. Is that correct? Correct. What was your relationship to all of this growing up? Like, like, were you interested in filmmaking and video? Where does this all come from? Not at all. I have zero interest in, in video making. I have zero interest in filmmaking. I view filmmaking and video making as means to an end. First of all, I'm also Palestinian. So Palestinian-Israeli is a very complicated relationship. It's kind of like being African-American or white Nigerian. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, you have two identities at the same time. And so I hated it. And so for me, the end was not necessarily to be a video maker or to be an entrepreneur. The end was my voice or my people's voice must matter. That's the end. Mm, mm. Your voice must be heard because traditionally, systematically, it is not heard. It is not cared about. I lived in a small village and it was called a village because if you call it a city, you'll have to get more funding. And they just didn't want to give us more funding. And so we stayed a village until we came, became 30,000 people in a village. And only like two years ago, we became a city. And so this periphery, the life of a periphery, it's not, I'm not the only one who feels it. Um, if you're born in Los Angeles as a white person, you may not feel it. But 90% of the world, I think, can feel some sort of we don't matter and our voice is not heard. And so my mission has been not necessarily to make videos or be popular or whatever. It's been to shed light on what I think is traditionally marginalized. The things that I care about that are traditionally marginalized. And that's why I build companies. That's why I make videos. Uh, that's why I want to exist. Is there a first moment that you remember video being used as a tool for that mission? The first video I made was, uh, it was in college. It was actually way, like way after I went to, to, to Harvard and it was third year. 
We made a video where we uh, sent a hamburger to space. You know how people send things to space to take a picture of space and the curvature of Earth? I was like, wow, I'm pretty sure we can do a hamburger if we can get funding from the nearby hamburger store. And so I sent an email to them and said, hey, I would like a thousand dollar sponsorship uh, to send your hamburger to space if you're interested. <laughs> and within a minute, they said yes. A minute. That was my first ever sponsorship. So they wow. came, we gave us a thousand bucks, we sent it to space and we made a video about it. And that video ended up going viral on YouTube. It got a million views. Jay Leno made fun of it. He's like, wow, these Harvard kids sending a hamburger to space. I can go to space too to eat the hamburger. So I was like, oh, that's really interesting. From the campus, I'm able to reach a million people without having to build an app. That's an easy way to reach the most number of people. What was the burger company's reaction? That had to be the best advertising deal in the history of, of content. Also, it only cost $1,000 to send something to space? Yeah, and back then I thought that was an insane amount of money. They loved it. You know, the founder was a big fan. We got the burger, we put it in a, in a box. We did a, we did a they did a space burger edition. Uh, oh, wow. They mm. gave discounts. I mean, it was amazing. Uh, and it was a small burger chain. And so it was really nice to see the collaboration between just a, a students and a corporation in content and how that could be beneficial to both parties. What year were you at Harvard and, and what was the environment like at Harvard? Like what did it foster creativity like that? Was it encouraged to do something out of the box? And why did you send a hamburger to space? Like that what was of the context? <laughs> of that? What I'm about to say may be slightly controversial, but I do not think Harvard fosters creativity. I think Harvard fosters an insane amount of de-risking. And then this is my issue with the traditional education and the traditional institutions. I mean, look, I love Harvard and it's the best thing that happened to me in my life. But people apply to Harvard as freshmen with 500 different interests. I wanna be an astronaut. I wanna be a, a, a social change maker. I wanna be this, I wanna be this. And they graduate Harvard with three interests. Finance, consulting, or tech. Anybody that applies to Harvard wanting to be an astronaut graduates Harvard as a banker. That tells you a little bit about the system that we've developed, whereby if you don't get a banking job that gives you 100K a year, you are a failure to your friends, to society, to the culture that Harvard has, and Duke, and UPenn, and Princeton, and all these universities. You know, I applied to Harvard as wanting to be an electrical engineer astronaut. And I graduated wanting to get a job at Deutsche Bank. They rejected me, thank God. And I got a job at, at Venmo as a software engineer. So. <laughs> wow. So you, you were interested in becoming an astronaut. And I guess you did get to send something to space, which is interesting. Yeah. But how many people from your village went to Harvard? With you? Uh, I was the only one. You were the only one. In the, history of, in the history of the village, unfortunately. Was that a desire? Did you grow up saying, I want to go to Harvard? I want to go to the, one of the best universities? Or was that, was that a validation point? Like, why Harvard? No. I also didn't care about Harvard. Harvard, for me, was a way to de-risk as well. When you were Palestinian-Israeli, the first thing I wanted to do was, if I want to prove my value, then I must escape the place where I have no value. Okay, so I had to leave Israel and I didn't want to spend a year of my life learning another language like German to live in Germany or French to live in France. I had to go to a, an English speaking country and I wanted to go to a place where I feel like I could be a citizen. And America had a lot more stuff going on for it, the American dream. 
And the only reason I applied to Harvard and all the Ivy Leagues is because they're the only universities that give you financial aid if you apply. All the other universities do not give you money if you're an international student. And I, cannot, I could not afford university education in the United States. And so I was forced to apply to the top schools simply because I realized if I get in, I can get it for free and it's possible to get in. And that's, that's the only reason why. So no, no, no like romantic association with Harvard. In fact, I, I, I wanted to go to MIT and MIT just didn't give me enough scholarship. And so I, I ended up going to Harvard. So I think, is it safe to assume you were a good student? Like what was your relationship with school? It's easy to be a good student when you're in a village in the periphery of Israel. In the sense that the competition is not as strong as if you were in a private school. I, I would say I was good enough for school. I was, certainly was not good enough for Harvard. I struggled a lot. I, I think the admission people like have a sixth sense or something. And they know who's likely to do something stupid. And they just accept them. <laughs> well, what, was there something in your college essay? Was there a story that you told that you feel like, oh, that was unique to me, and maybe they saw that? The concept of just applying is a win by itself. Because in Israel, only Jewish students apply to these universities. So my girlfriend likes to make fun of me and say, you're just a diversity uh, student. So they just accepted me for diversity. I disagree. But just the concept of applying was a monumental task. There is no guaranteed structure in these kind of uh, places in the world that helps you, funnels you into Harvard. Many of my classmates at Harvard, you know, come from well-off backgrounds or private institutions. And there, it's like, since the day you're young, they tell you, you got to go to Harvard. You know, your dad went to Harvard or whatever. I'd say like when they just saw a random ass kid applying who likes Rubik's Cubes and wants to be an astronaut and and fix Israel-Palestine, they were like, this guy's an idiot. Let him in. <laughs> He'll probably send a burger to space <laughs> yeah, or something. Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what was the aftermath of, of the burger in space? Was it celebrated on campus? Were there teachers who were like, you're a marketing genius? Like, how was, how, what was the reception of that? The reception of that was, yeah, you guys are crazy. That was highly encouraging to start creating more content. And that's how a creator is born anyway. You make one piece of content, you see a lot of value in it, and you say, I, I want to repeat that value for the rest of my life. And so, you know, we had companies reach out saying, I want you to send my cigars to space. I want you to send my employee pictures to space. And so we saw also a business opportunity there. SpaceX college version, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. But eventually I ended up saying like, okay, I don't want to be sending balloons to space for the rest of my life. So I, uh, I graduated and I made another video and I also put it on YouTube and that also uh, did pretty well. It was like solving a Rubik's Cube, but in like 20 countries by 70 different strangers. And that took like three months to make. And that also went viral. And so slowly I realized a video doesn't just have like a one day lifespan or a one week lifespan. It, has a, it could have a five year lifespan if it's a good video. And I, I, I was attracted to that. What was the impetus behind the Rubik's Cube video? Was, there, was it just to test yourself and see, can this go viral? Or was there something else behind that? I, I think the virality was a nice like, surprise, but I just thought it was a video that needed to exist. You know, uh, There are some videos, in my opinion, that need to exist. Whether they get views or not, doesn't matter. They, just, they must exist in this form because I've never seen anything like it, I think this would be a net positive if it existed. And we just, we just make them. And that's why NAS Academy empowers people to create 
the videos that need to exist. So you graduate Harvard and, and you want to go into, it sounds like some sort of finance. You don't get a job at, at a <laughs> bank, but you, you make your way to Venmo, which is, I mean, it's a great job. And from, I think all that, the headlines, and if anyone's, you know, read articles about you, the classic headline is about you leaving a six figure job at, at Venmo <laughs> to travel the world. So I'm curious about that. Like the decision there, you know, take us through, you graduate Harvard and then you're just like, I, I'm at this great job. It's, it's well paying. There's probably a path forward, but I, I'm out. I want to do something different. Just in the interest of transparency, um, I struggled to get a job, even with a Harvard degree. I was an undesirable hire because I was a jack of all trades, but a master of none. And I was not a master of finance. I didn't show enough interest in finance and I was not a master of tech. My entire dream job was to be a product manager. And so I wanted to be building products without having to be pigeonholed in one. That's why I'm doing my dream now, finally. Facebook gave me final round interview and then unfortunately I, I didn't make it. So. The job at Venmo was really the founder just took a chance at me. The founder was like, yo, um, we're both immigrants, my friend. I see your struggle and you see my struggle. Just come in, be a software engineer with us. And, uh, and uh, you know, let's hang out all the time. And so we just hung out all the time and I just learned how a founder works. The founder mindset is so valuable to be around. And I learned a lot from him, how to be aggressive, how to be uh, unconventional, how to say a big fuck you to the system. You know, building Venmo is a big F you to the system, right? I'm gonna make a social feed of your financial transactions. I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of people were against it at the beginning. So, so I thought, you know what? I'm very inspired by that and I don't need a job. I, I saved up enough money. I wanna do a big F you to the system. And so I gave up my H1B visa I really did not like the American visa system. And I went to Kenya on a one-way ticket. And I said, I'm just going to be a Facebook creator. I'm just going to make Facebook videos. And they're going to be one minute long. All these filmmakers making 50-minute long videos, I don't give a shit. I want to make a one-minute video. And I want it to be better than a 50-minute film. Uh, of course, uh, it was never better, but it, it was a start. And that was the beginning of sort of the Nas Daily creator journey. Uh, because, you know, you're, you're inspired by people who did crazy things and you've always wanted to do it. And so you just take the plunge at some point in your life. So were you making videos on the side while you were at Venmo or was there any thought of videos or were you just always lingering from the videos that you were making, you know, between the, the burger and, and the Rubik's Cube? I was trying to make videos. I just didn't have any ideas. And that's the problem with if you're content creating without a guaranteed like deadline, because I just had no deadline. And so I said, okay, I just want to make a video about chicken over rice uh, food carts in New York. I want to make a video about like homelessness in New York. I want to make a video about like my life in New York. So I made one video every month or every two months. And it's just, it didn't feel strong enough. Were those uploaded to Facebook? Those few videos here and there? Yeah, actually, I made a video where I went to a Trump rally dressed up in a, like an American suit, just like a super America suit, like going to Trump rally. This is way before he was president. It was like, yeah, like, why do you like Trump? It was a joke back then. And I did that on my weekend. And I just saw that when you're a software engineer, every day I went to work, I felt average because the, my teammate was so much better than me and I was not a good engineer. I felt average every day from nine to five. But when I went to the Trump rally, 
with an American suit and a camera, I felt like I'm in my element. Individuals are difficult to commoditize. Yeah. Right? There's only one Colin, there's only one Samir. And you take Colin and Samir, there's definitely only one of you guys. So <laughs> no one can compete with you because there's no other Indian and a white guy on YouTube doing podcasting about creators. <laughs> that is true. That's true. Yeah. I don't think so. We haven't seen him yet. So you can automatically say you're great by definition of scarcity. And I was like, wow, you know, there's no other person dressed up like, a, like an America suit making videos at a Trump rally. I am already great because no one else is better than me because there is no one else. And I love that idea. And so if you truly want to be the best at something, the easiest way to do it is to, to be the only one doing that something. Mm. That's, that's a like very that. cool lead in um, to, to the conversation around choosing Facebook. I'm curious, were you watching other creators? Like was Casey Neistat daily vlogging at this time? Like what, were you inspired by that? I actually was inspired by Casey Neistat. I gotta give it to this guy. First of all, you know, his content was very like for New Yorkers, for Americans, may not have personally connected to me, uh, but what connected to me personally was Man, this guy has got a company, a family, a kid, a wife. He lives in New York and he can make a video every day and he can work out every day. And like this guy's work ethic is unbelievable. If he can do it, I'm pretty sure I can do it too. I was inspired to do the daily because of Casey Neistat and I committed to the thousand days. I was not inspired to become a YouTuber because I, I didn't like the YouTube ecosystem. My mom did not go on YouTube. My brother did not go on YouTube. My cousins did not go on YouTube every day. They went on Facebook. And I said, if I want to make videos, I want to make them for my friends. I don't care about anyone on YouTube. Sorry, like anyone watching this, I don't know you. I do know my mom, I do know my brother, and I do know my cousins and my friends from college. And these are the people I wanted to make videos for. And that's why I decided to go to Facebook. That's really cool. It plays into a bit of what you talked about um, earlier on about kind of like the underserved communities and even like people who don't necessarily have a voice. Like Facebook video was undefined. YouTube was starting to become defined. There was a lot happening there. It had a voice that yeah. was developing. Facebook didn't have a voice yet. And the people who were on Facebook didn't have a video creator. They didn't have a personality to connect with. Exactly. So I find that to be a very interesting parallel that, you know, that's just a common theme with what you're doing and, and even in your origin stories. And I remember at that time, in my mind, you were the only Facebook creator. I don't remember any other people making video on Facebook. That's a good title. The only Facebook creator. <laughs> Interview with the only. <laughs> but it clearly worked. I mean, today, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but 20 million people are, are following your Facebook page. Is that correct? So I actually have 12 Facebook pages and those okay. have 30, Amazing. 33 million followers uh, collectively. Wow. Because we localize a lot of the content. You know, the people who win the most money or the most uh, in life are the ones who predict the next five years the most accurately. And so as I looked around back then in 2016, I honestly made the bet that YouTube was going to die. I was wrong with that bet. But I also made another bet that Facebook was going to be massive, especially Facebook videos. And that bet succeeded. And so I was just at the right time at the right place. I was just 600 days too early. So the change to Facebook videos happened 600 days into my journey. And so I was literally just there. When they introduced Facebook Watch, a Facebook rep called me and, and she was like, when I saw your page, I almost cried. I finally saw a Facebook video creator that takes 
Facebook video seriously and creates the content that we would like to see on this platform. And I was like, wow, like, like this feels like a bug in the system. There has to be a lot more Facebook creators and it's just a matter of time because Facebook as a company is going in that direction. And so I would say we massively benefited from it. Now I have my gripes and problems with Facebook, but overall, you know, they're the reason I'm talking to you guys. And that's amazing. I like what you mentioned about predicting the future. And I think like, you know, where you are today with Nas Academy is, is actually pretty in line with that. But to, to go to that time when you started deciding to make daily uploads, like, was that challenging for you? Did you find it to be easy? How did you pay your bills? Like, what was that like to embark on that journey of uploading a thousand videos in a thousand days? Making a thousand videos in a thousand days was the loneliest, darkest, hardest, most torturous time of my life, but also the most fun. But, but it's hard. I like doing hard things, like things that I think are hard. So I, I enjoyed the challenge. It was a nice commitment. When you make videos every day, there's a few things you have to give up on, right? First of all, your friends, goodbye forever. Your family, I'm sorry, I cannot be there for you anymore. Your girlfriend, if you had a girlfriend back then, I'm sorry, we cannot be together. Essentially, you have to become 100% selfish. That's really the definition of making videos every day. You are 100% selfish, in which nothing matters, not even your well-being, but this project. This project matters. Your community doesn't matter, your country doesn't matter, your mom doesn't matter, your dad doesn't matter. And that's how I was for three and a half years. When I found a girlfriend that is willing to date me, we said, look, the videos are number one, you will be number two, and I'll be number three, and my family will be number four. That was the ranking of my life, and you know, I'm not necessarily proud of it, it was just a reality. At what point does that ranking come to an end and alter? <laughs> Wow, that's a, I, I've never heard that question before. <laughs> if I'm being honest with you, that ranking is still in place, even after I finish a thousand videos. So now instead of videos is number one, it's company number one, my relationship number two, I think my family number three, and then myself as number four. So maybe I switched myself with my family. I don't think anything will be number one other than the company for the next five years at least. Yeah, I understand that, especially because we are creators, we are founders, we're, we're entrepreneurs. So I think we yeah. can relate to that. The thing that we've learned over the past 10 years of doing this is just finding a little bit more of that balance to to take the rank of self up the ranks, yeah. right? And, and figuring out how to yeah. do it. We've never daily vlogged. Uh, <laughs> we tried once. We were very inspired by Casey, by you, uh, and, and just were like, let's make a video every day impossible. The longest we could go was a week. five, five days or six yeah. days. Wow. I know. Yeah. So we shifted the ranking. Um, and actually in our latest iteration of who we are today is like, we went, you know, our, our health and wellness first and said, what can we do with our content to sustain ourselves and be mentally and, and physically healthy? Now, this is not to say that we don't you know, work long hours every day and we're, we're yeah. working across the weekend. The ranking like fluctuates. Yeah. But I think what we try and do now is have more of a conversation around, did it get out of whack last weekend? Did mm. something get out of place? Yeah. And then let's work to fix that and put it kind of back in order the next week. And how do we scale and build processes to make it a little bit more comfortable? It's going to waver because we're embarking on the journey of, of scaling and launching more. And when you build, I mean, the yeah. amount of people you have on that wall, like that is 
a yeah. very serious <laughs> endeavor. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's no joke to run a company like that. That's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Did you go into making a video every day thinking it was going to become a business? Were you confident in that or, or was it just, let's do this for fun and if someone pays me, great? No, I never thought of it as a business. Uh, I didn't think it was possible to make videos, uh, to make money from Facebook. I knew that I wanted it to evolve to become a business, but I didn't know exactly how. I got my first dollar on day 12. I kid you not. When you put yourself out there and you adopt a platform that not many people adopt and you create content that at least has like scripts and like opinions, the weirdest people reach out to you. So a random company in Russia reached out to me from Ukraine, a Ukrainian company. I was in Kenya. Look at how many fraud sensors there are, right? Okay, you're in <laughs> Kenya. A Ukrainian company is reaching out to you, telling you I have a media company in Nigeria, all right? <laughs> and I'd like you to do consulting for me because I like your Facebook video on Kenya. I had, and, and I was like, okay, give me something. Give me a website. I just didn't see a website. I was like, okay, four fraud levels, four fraud sensors. And I was just like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> I'll do consulting for you one hour on the side because of my video skills. And I'll charge you $3,000 a month. And that was the first time I realized your knowledge can be monetized. Your knowledge can be productized. And that's the foundation of NAS Academy right? It's the ability to allow people to productize and monetize and share their knowledge uh, with the world. And that $3,000 a month that lasted for two months drove me forward to feel like this can be monetized even if there's no YouTube AdSense. And I've built most of my career without relying on AdSense at all. AdSense never was more than 20% of my earnings. Yeah. And when you say AdSense, are you referring to like Facebook sort of version? Yeah. Of yeah. AdSense? First, yeah. In, in stream ads, Facebook and YouTube. Oh, wow. So, so between like platform revenue, it never made up more than 20%. Yeah. What makes up the rest of the pie before, you know, the version of your company today? And then yeah. what does that look like today? So most of the pie comes from tourism boards or brand deals or speaking engagements. I found speaking engagements to be a great source of revenue. It's very uh, not time consuming. And uh, if you say the right things. Are you yes. transparent around how much money Facebook paid you or how much money of you made from Facebook? Of course. How much money did you make from Facebook? From the in-stream programs, I make roughly, roughly a million a year. And I've been doing this like aggressively for the last two years. So probably make 2 million. So 60% of my user base is in Asia. I localize my content. Every video I make in English, I translate to Arabic, Vietnamese, Bahasa, Indonesia, Spanish, uh, French. Uh, you name it, we translate it and we put it in individual Facebook pages. So we have 4 wow. million followers in the Arabic world, 2 million followers in Vietnam. 2 million followers, 2% of the country of Vietnam follows Nas daily and they don't speak English. I love wow. it. That's you know, 1% of the Arab world, there's 400 million, 4 million follows Nas daily and they don't speak English. And I think just reaching people that don't have the privilege of English is so ama amazing. And so there's not money, there's no money in that. And where I get my money, 
I, I, get, I got another $2 million from Facebook through corporate deals, right? Through like throughout the years. Just like production, originals, creation. I got another you know, $4 million from, from governments who are interested in helping their citizens. So the citizens may not have money, right? But the overarching authority of these people has the resources to support you. And that's what I want creators to understand is that you don't have to reach only people in Wisconsin. You can reach people in Vietnam. You'll find a way to make money if you reach the right people. I wanted to position Nas Daily as a friend of corporations, not an enemy. I wanted to position Nas Daily as a creator who understands software as well, so I can speak at tech conferences, as opposed to a creator that you know, strips with his, with his girlfriend and you know, shows boobs and asses left and right on every thumbnail. There's a difference between how you position creators and you're positioning your creators, your creator journey very well. You are the biggest friend of companies, VCs, and people that have real power. And I, I think that's very smart. And so I position myself as that. Now you went to the B2B part. I wanted to position myself at B2C. And so that's how you end up with like pharmaceutical companies engaging you for speaking engagements and you know nothing about medicine. So speaking engagements was one. Uh, brand deals was another. Uh, and that's it. And to be honest with you, when I was averaging a million new followers a month, I wasn't making much money because it was not monetized. One minute videos are not monetized. Mm. My hypothesis was I don't care about money. I, I had that privilege in a sense, right? Where I had you know, $60,000 in savings. So I didn't need to care about money. And I was making five to 10,000 a month. So that was, that's enough. My goal back then was distribution, distribution, distribution. When you build enough of a brand, you'll be able to monetize it down the road. And so I focused a lot on just distribution. Unfortunately, far too many creators that have 50 followers, they're like, I cannot believe Facebook AdSense or Facebook Instream is so low. Like, you're nobody. You shouldn't worry about this stuff. Find different ways to make money. Literally do a freelance gig every now and then. Your primary goal should be distribution. And that's it. That's a really good point. When we first started, so it's been 10 years. So you mentioned our brand positioning. It's been 10 years and in the last three months, we finally landed on a brand positioning we feel really good about. And that nice. took us almost four years since we started the Colin and Samir channel to get to a point where we understood what the path is for us as a business. But once we found the focus, it, it just accelerated. And that was matched with figuring out how to get more distribution and how to yeah. be more present, not yeah. just through YouTube views, but be more present in the industry mm -hmm. across platforms, in front of people, network. And so that brand positioning, um, that has really helped us. And uh, I, I, I totally agree with you because when we first started for the first couple of years, we, were, we would make websites, we sold stickers, we would do anything for someone to pay us $500, right? And that kept the lights on. So that was how we first monetized. We had to just figure it out. And AdSense for us has never even touched 10% of our revenue. Wow. You know, and I don't know if it ever will because we're a different type of creator. Yeah, it doesn't need to. Yeah, and it doesn't need to because we we can now use our brand positioning in other ways. Yeah. And so I'm curious how much you thought about your brand positioning and at what point you recognized you were gonna launch an educational platform. When did you say, okay, my brand is positioned properly for me to go from speaking engagements, brand deals to now an academy? Whenever people see NAS, 
I want them to think of good thoughts. I want them to feel like quality. I want them to think that stand for something. Humans. I wanted Nas Daily to be like humans of New York, but video format. And I've, I'm, I'm industry agnostic, right? I just want to fix the problems that I believe I have a really good chance at fixing. So we started with productions, Nas Studios. I believe I have a really good chance at creating content that's slightly different from an, a normal production house. So we created Nas Studios. Nas Academy is, I believe I can help other creators monetize their education. Because I, I really believe that when you share knowledge, it's a net positive return. And I really hate the structure of education right now. Um, and so I believe in Nas Academy and technology, like we're very well positioned to succeed in this mission. And we are raising, we're announcing soon that we are raising, uh, we finished the Series A. And we have incredible institutional support behind us for the next 50 years to win in this mission very big. But eventually, you know, I, I want to make this to be very big. And at some point, like, hey, is a NAS hotel interesting? In NAS Airlines? You know, NAS Fund? NAS Gov? What I believe in is that you need to build an organization with a DNA, and that DNA can just extend to many industries. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I, I think that is, it's interesting because it, it comes back to your point around predicting the next five years, and you just mentioned 50 years, and thinking forward. I am curious about that process of, of taking on investment and that appetite for risk and the appetite for building, you know, a company very differently from being a bootstrapped creator who's just traveling, doing brand deals. Like even if you just stopped at production company, you have a fantastic lifestyle business. You could probably make millions of dollars doing that between advertising deals, production, yeah. and live a very comfortable life. Why take on raising capital and building this business? And what is that DNA that you believe so much in? This is the first time I raised institutional money in five years. The reason I waited five years to do it, and we're raising you know, $10 million. The reason that's I a lot it, of money. <laughs> it's, it's, a lot, it's a lot of money. It's other people's pension money. money. Yeah, it's a lot of responsibility. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The reason I'm comfortable doing it now is because for the first five years, I didn't find a way to build a company that doesn't rely on me. Making videos relied heavily on me, being there, making the say, drink Coca-Cola, you know, relies a lot on you. I didn't find a scalable solution. A studio house is, relies a lot on the creativity of the, of the teammates, and that's very difficult mm -hmm. to scale. I don't want to be an agency like VaynerMedia or Publicist Group. I don't aspire to be that. So that's unscalable. That's profitable, but unscalable. So the first time in my life, kind of like you guys in the last three months, in the last year, I figured out exactly the scalable version of NAS Academy and why it matters and why it's a net positive in the world. And for that, I realized it's very expensive to build. Software engineers are very hard. Talent is very, very expensive to get from Facebook. I was just talking to a, a big company uh, employee that I wanted to hire. And, you know, their compensation is $500,000 a year. Wow. <laughs> and you're like... Man, how many brand deals do I have to make to pay this person's yeah. salary? <laughs> you got to send a lot of burgers to space to do yeah. that, you know? Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're thinking twice now. I don't, I don't think it's going gonna, it's gonna to work. Right. So these, these decisions help. Okay, I need to raise funding to be able to achieve on that mission. And I believe if I was able to make it, if you're able to make it in the last 10 years, in the last five years, this is the time for both of us to make it work for others. 
And the way to do that is to help them make more money or help them get more education. Really, it's, there's only two things that matter in the world. More finance or more knowledge. Nothing else matter. Your freaking, you know, merch doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change much. Now, it makes money, but it doesn't help change someone's life. So that's why I'm so excited about NASA Academy because it has that unique positioning that is necessary in the world. It must exist as a company. And if it must exist, then I'm gonna do whatever it takes to make it exist. I love that. One thing that's that's interesting is we talk about this a lot with creators. We talk about value prop extensions, which means like, what is your value prop to your audience? And then what's an extension of that? And yeah. what you mentioned earlier about merchandise, like I believe that if your value prop is community, then merchandise is a fantastic extension sure. of that because I can identify other people in the community. If someone else is wearing that shirt, immediately I can be like, oh, you're a fan of, of Nas. We believe the same thing. We're a part of the same community. Right. But actually, when you look back at your videos, your value prop was education. You were teaching us about places and people that we would have not known about. And it exactly. was actually to take a step further in that, the value prop was not only education, but it was education that would never be taught in schools. Exactly. And so it makes a ton of sense to me that you would go from education that would never be taught anywhere else. That's about people to scaling a company that's education that will not be taught by anyone else and is all about people. You went to one of the top education institutes in the world. I went to film school. Very little of what I learned in school is applied today. Do you think that will ever change? Does general curriculum change or is it is the bet that you and us are the educators of the future and that these institutions will either have to catch up, partner with us? Like, how does this, how does this play out in the education space? I spent four years at Harvard. When I was in the corporate world, I realized nothing I learned in four years was applicable to my job interview or to my day-to-day -day work. And that was just came as a shocker to me. I was like, oh my God quarter of a million dollars later and i just don't know how to how to html works or how css works <laughs> so there there is i don't think institutions educational institutions can move fast enough it's done like that company has to go bankrupt like it's kind of like ibm or yahoo or whatever done i think it will be replaced by many many smaller companies many many smaller institutions what's the smallest educational institution you can have one person one-person universities, one-person universities. That's the future. I learned how to cook from Gordon Ramsay. I learned how to become a creator from Nas Daily. I learned how to code from, from, the, from the lead software engineer at Facebook. That's it. And so I think Nas Academy, we're on a mission to build 100,000 one-person universities. That's the mission. And when you have 100,000 universities in your platform, I'm using the term very loosely, obviously. You can help governments and corporations alike. We've already signed deals with the Singapore government and the Emirates government, uh, the UAE government, to, to empower their citizens to become creators. Uh, we've signed deals with big corporations like Grab, Pfizer, Singapore Airlines um, to empower their employees. So the future, I think, and this will make me very happy, is when in five years from now, Harvard will come to NASA Academy and say, we would like to partner with you guys as an education provider uh, to our students. And that's a full circle. That's, that's when I can quit. When that happens, I'll quit. Wow, that's, 
<laughs> Amazing. That's yeah. so fascinating to think about governments and huge corporations coming to you to train either their employees or their citizens. Can you give us an example of what it's like uh, when you're working with or, or someone from Singapore Airlines is coming to Nas Academy? What are they in that instance learning and what are they taking back to Singapore Airlines? They're learning from people that actually do. Do you know the term, those who cannot do teach? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I always thought that was a problem at Harvard or at my high school. I believe that those who can do also teach, you know, so you can still do, but you must teach as well. So the value they're getting is they're getting actual knowledge from people that are, have proven success, not just like a content, social media content consultants. Then the second value is they're getting the latest knowledge, right? This is the latest situation of TikTok. This is the latest Facebook algorithm situation. I know it because I live it. And so they empower their citizens and their employees to become media companies themselves. That's the goal. Decentralized media. Bitcoin is decentralized finance. NAS Academy is decentralized creators, decentralized education. Social media is decentralized media. The future is decentralized, but governments are not decentralized. I think governments will be centralized. Everything in between will be decentralized. Financial literacy is one thing, right? Like teaching, teaching a crop of citizens about financial literacy, maybe introducing certain things to them. Media literacy and storytelling literacy and platform literacy, like why, why does that matter? Well, you know, from my experience, right, you know, countries like the Emirates, and we have those conversations with, you know, the executive office. Look, we are creating so many rules, so many laws, and we find it ineffective in, in spreading the message to everybody. We are finding it sometimes that, you know, traditional newspapers, traditional uh, websites of like the New York Times equivalent, they don't have enough distribution. And these random kids on TikTok have a lot of distribution. What if we can marry both? What if we can empower our citizens to tell our story? And this is a big problem in the Arab world because the person who tells our story is the US Western media, right? Western media is my voice. And they only care about me when there's a terrorist attack. They don't care about me when I get into Harvard. They don't care about me when I build a machine or build a corporate. New York Times doesn't care about me. And so the only reason why traditional media would care about an Arab is when there is politics involved. So for, the, for governments in the, in the Arab world, they're like, we got to change the narrative. The only way, the best way to change the narrative is not to beg Fox News and New York Times to tell our story. It's to create our own New York Times in the form of individuals to tell our story that's not about the bad stuff. I absolutely love that. And I obviously emailed you and, and asked you about um, India because I have a very deep you know, connection in my family to, to creativity and, and um, the Indian community. And, and last time when I was in India, I ended up meeting up with a bunch of TikTok creators in India. And this was before you know, the pandemic and before TikTok was, was uh, shut down in India. But they were all providing for their families through TikTok. And that was something that I was was so amazing to me that yeah. just with a phone in your pocket, you could provide for your family in a country like India through your creativity. Amazing. That to me was the most empowering, like to sit with these kids and truly understand that that's something that was happening. Uh, I was I was blown away and I just felt like, you know, the more empowerment and the more um, education, I, I, I hadn't thought about it in that angle of like, 
telling the story um, of, of certain areas that don't get much coverage or get very biased coverage. Uh, I had I'd primarily thought about it as like opening up new careers in these places and, and mm, careers that yeah. are like, you know, like how scrutinized in India it is if you don't get good grades, like you're not going anywhere. Yep. But what if you're really creative? Like, you know, Bollywood is this small. Like, how do you get into <laughs> Bollywood? Like, but if you can pull out your phone and become, you know, your own creator and, and generate an income like that, I think that's, that's amazing. It's interesting to think about it in terms of a global career, like a skill set that can build a career for you that transcends geography is really yes. fascinating. What is your take on, you know, the future of, of creators? Is, is our space saturated? Is it, is it too late to become a creator? Which platform should you go to? Like, what do we do uh, as, a, as a community of creators right now? It certainly is not saturated. And I know that because when Nas Studios gets a brand deal, we're like, okay, we have this marketing budgets. Who do we give it to, to tell the story of this country or this product? And we have a list of 30 people that we think are well positioned to tell the story within the affordable budget. I really think that we're just at 1% of what a creator is. And I also think the definition of a creator will expand beyond video. Some people are just not good in front of a camera, but they're really good with audio or really good with creativity. I think if you are about to become a creator now, you should be very strategic as to which platform you choose. There are some platforms that have enough supply of content and enough demand. They've reached equilibrium. There's 50,000 pieces of videos uploaded per day and 500 million viewers per day. Like that's average of 10 views per video or whatever. That's equilibrium platforms. There are platforms that don't have equilibrium, right? Where they have incredible demand for views, not enough supply for content. That is the place you wanna be in. And that's the place where I was in with Facebook, right? It was incredible demand for attention, but not enough supply of content, high quality content that's not your grandma. And that's where Nas Daily got 30 million followers. And so if you look at it now, what are the platforms that, don't, that, that have the misequilibrium? It is not YouTube. YouTube has reached equilibrium. And that's the problem with YouTube. If you wanna be discovered, you need to be either on Facebook, because there's no equilibrium in that, or TikTok, or Instagram Reels. That, these are the three places that still have that leverage opportunity. Wow, that's, that's good. I feel uh, very motivated right now to post a TikTok. So yeah, <laughs> I, the, it's working. Whatever you're doing is working. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> How do you, as a creator that starts building, like let's say you build like a just a, a niche audience, how do you monetize? What's the what's the path to monetization? If you want to monetize, you must create content that's not a commodity. Your looks is a commodity. There are 50 million highly attractive individuals in the world. If you're just one of them that just happens to make TikToks, you are easily replaceable. Now, models are a different thing but you're incredibly replaceable if you just rely on your looks. So number one, do not rely on your looks for your content. And I can say this because I look like this. Number two, <laughs> what you need to do is find a format of content that is hard to commoditize. Ask yourself, what do I have access to that nobody else in the world has access to? For me, it was the world. I could be in Peru tomorrow because I don't have a job. Yeah, I have a nice passport. The world is my commodity. Right, and that's really hard to replace. How many people can afford to go to Peru, Antarctica, India, and Ethiopia in the same month? 
That's non-commoditized content. Uh, that's why you should follow me. For you, your non-commoditized content is access. You have access to Nas Daily, to MKBHD, to, to A16Z. You have access to these creators that other people may not have that same access to. So you can be the only person that has this content. And that's really it. And consistency. Yeah. Just do it a million that, times. I think that's like the best advice that, that we can leave creators with. Um, uh, that was really good. Uh, I, I do want to ask you one thing, and this is, you know, I come from an immigrant family, but I was born in the U.S., yeah. I'm curious how your family uh, views your career. Like how, how did they, how do your parents view your career, your friends from home? Like what do they think about all of this? Um, yeah, this is, this is a tough one. Um, I think in building Nas Daily, the, the hardest thing was really to shake off the traditions that I've gotten from my community and my family. Uh, like with my dad, you know, the tradition of having a, an employee, he's never had an employee in his life. You know, when I hired my first person, he was like, are you sure you can do that? You don't need to do that. You are now have to pay this person X thousand dollars a month. Are you sure you can do that? Why not just keep all the money yourself? And so I had to shake off that to begin with. The second thing I had to shake off is the concept of a career. A career is when you spend 10 years to make a million dollars and just like ascend the ranks of corporate ladder. And that's what my parents did. That's what their parents did. And so quitting to go make Facebook videos and leaving America and a Harvard degree and a career in software to go make Facebook videos in Kenya is a huge shock. And the first 200 days, you're not only trying to prove to yourself that this works. You're not trying to get followers like, like begging for them. You're also trying to prove to your dad and your mom that this is viable. And that may have been harder than making a million followers. You know, just thinking about it just makes me sad to how many other people have that preconceived notion of what success is from their parents and their community. And it's shaking that off is like, just makes me want to cry. Um, and so it's, it's our jobs to shake it off for them. It's like, yes, you can have a company that makes no profit. It's called investment in the future. Yes, you can raise venture capital funding you can raise $10 million and lose them, and it's okay. It's okay if you lose $10 million because the venture capital themselves tells you lose it in order to grow. These ideas are revolutionary. And the idea that to make incredible wealth, you need to have uh, uh, equity in, in high growth startups. These three ideas as creators, we must continuously promote um, if we want to get more successful people in the future. Wow. I, I teared up a bit when you were talking about, um, that just cause I, I connect to it a lot. Um, and, yeah. and, uh, I think that that education, not only learning those three things, but also seeing more people that look like you and sound like you doing it is something that I felt like I, I missed when I was a kid. And that's mm -hmm. for me, like one of my biggest senses of pride is sitting here talking and getting a DM from, from an Indian kid just saying, man, I, you know, I've, I, I want to be a creator too. This has been a, this has been an awesome conversation. I, I absolutely love it. Uh, and, and I really appreciate the time and, and for you coming on the show. Guys, this was, uh, it's a big honor for me. I think you, you've asked the smartest questions that could possibly be asked and your, your skills of interviewing are amazing. 
and your knowledge of the system are amazing. And so I want to thank you for inviting me and giving me the airwaves. And uh, I hope we can. I hope we can continue working in the future, some way or form or shape. I think we will. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think, think we, we will. will. <laughs>